If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Take something iconic, like the all-electric 2024 Fiat 500e. Add something electrica. Bring the swagger. And an Italian icon is remixed and ready to drop with its available premium JBL audio system. Tap the banner to learn more. Fiat is a registered trademark of FCA Group Marketing SPA, used under license by FCA US LLC. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. When thinking about 1960s Britain, you might first picture fans screaming for the Beatles or the daring rise of the miniskirt. However, this post-war period had a dark undertone. It was a time when black and Asian people frequently experienced racism and discrimination in housing, education and the workforce was commonplace. Preeti Dillon is the author of a book on British anti-racist activism in the period called The Shoulders We Stand On. I spoke to her to hear more about the fight for change and find out why she thinks 1981 was a turning point in UK race relations. Before we come on to the movements in more detail, I want to take a step back and look at the context. As your book focuses on Britain from the 60s through to the 80s, what was the country like during this period, particularly for black and Asian people? Yeah, so at this time, I see it as these two parallel narratives. And I'm glad you specified for, for, for black and brown people, because the common narrative of this time, we have the swinging 60s and the rise of the Beatles and the miniskirt and obviously England winning the Football World Cup. And the 60s in particular is remembered very, very fondly. And then the 70s and 80s are slightly more fraught with the minor strikes and the heat wave of 1976 and then the new economic era in the 1980s. And for black and brown people, there's a parallel narrative that was always fraught. And I'm looking to bring that narrative and those layers and that nuance back into what we think of when we think of the 60s to 80s. For black and brown people, the 60s weren't weren't the swinging 60s. Racial discrimination was still legal until 1965. And this meant that it was really difficult to find work because it was absolutely legal to, to, to have a colour bar, it was called, to have a policy of not hiring black or brown people or to have a, a quota system in terms of limiting the numbers of black and brown people that were hired. And there was also difficulties in finding housing. This was the era of signs saying no blacks, no dogs, no Irish. And when unemployment went up for the whole country, it affected black and brown people the worst, and young black people especially were the worst affected. Black and brown people also faced an existential crisis that the majority of the population didn't, in that there were a lot of racist murders and nowhere was safe. The streets weren't safe and even your own house wasn't safe. So it was a very, very uh, different narrative for black and brown people. But on top of all of this, there was a lot of resistance and there was a lot of activism around all these areas of life in which black and brown people were were discriminated. And thinking about that activism then, what was it that people were fighting for? They There were groups fighting against discrimination in all areas of life. 
So uh, in education, in healthcare, workers' rights, and you had women's groups, you had youth groups, the people were fighting against the immigration laws, against the police brutality. But as well as the, the specific campaign that, that people were embarking on, more generally, the movements were just fighting from freedom from oppression, freedom for oppressed people. And that was everywhere. These were very, very globally focused movements. They were against apartheid in South Africa. They were against the war in Vietnam. Thinking about that global focus then, was that something that was unique to just British activists? No, this was actually, this was common also globally. The UK Black Panthers, the British Black Panthers, um, started in the late 60s. And even though they, they started they were, because they were influenced by the US Black Panthers, and there was already a Black Power group, the Universal Coloured People's Association, that was formed in 1967. Uh, and then later that year, Stokely Carmichael came over from the US and did a speaking tour around the UK. And from then erupted a whole another set of black power groups in the UK. There was a, a lot of influence um, being taken from the US, also from anti-colonial revolutionary movements, both in Africa and the Caribbean. And even in France, um, a lot of people went over to France from, from the UK in 1968 um, and vice versa. So there was a real level of interconnectedness uh, throughout this period, not just from uh, the organisations in, in, in the UK, but also from around the world. And thinking about the Panthers in particular, how did they have their own unique British flavour? Yeah, so, and I think this is a really key point, Mian, and that I discussed three of the Black Power groups in my book. I discussed the Black Panthers, the Fasimbas, and the Black Liberation Front. And they none of them were just franchises or arms of of what was happening in the US. So the Black Panthers were fighting for social justice on British soil, but also they were fighting for consciousness raising. That was their main activity. They, as well as fighting for, for specific issues like the like with the big trial of the Mangrove Nine, their main activities were actually around education and, and consciousness building. They had bookshops, they published newsletters, and these were all focused on things that were happening in the UK. They would discuss UK news and what was happening amongst the black and brown community, uh, as well as obviously having also the global focus. And so they were very much acting locally. They did community support. They went into prisons. They provided legal advice. So it was a real yeah, British focus, but always with kind of also a global, a global thinking in the background. And I'm keen to discuss education in more detail. But just before we come on to that, for any listeners who aren't overly familiar with this subject, could you quickly define what black power was? Yeah, so black power was essentially the belief that it was okay to be proud to be black. Um, this was the era of, of Nina Simone and James Brown and singing about being young, gifted and black and having a sense of, of pride in that heritage and reclaiming that heritage. Women and men both wore their hair in afros. Uh, people wear dashikis. This was a time to really reclaim that um, identity of, of being black. And that came out also yeah, in music, in, in, in clothing, in the way people spoke, in the food people ate. This was a time of not, no more hiding what it was to be, to be black, essentially. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, 
the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down. And learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. So returning then to the idea of education, you mentioned in your earlier answer that it's heavily connected to resistance and to activism. But why was it that education was such a flashpoint? So there were two main policies which which affected children at this time. One main policy which affected brown children was this policy of busing. And a policy which affected black children was then being labelled educationally subnormal. And so with busing, this started when uh, the education minister, uh, Edward Boyle, said that no more than 30% of the student body should come from an immigrant background. Any more than that, and uh, it was likely to, to bring down the performance of the other, other students. And so to achieve this 30% um, maximum, children, mostly brown children, were bussed out for miles to other neighbourhoods, to schools where there were fewer children from immigrant backgrounds. And this was then largely to appease the white parents at the other schools that they had come from. But life was really difficult for these children. They often were in very hostile, hostile neighbourhoods. Um, and so they often had to leave early, even um, to take the bus back home early. Otherwise, they'd risk being beaten up. They'd often have an extra two hours of traveling every day. They couldn't take part in any sort of community activities. Um, they weren't part of a school feeling. And this happened all over the country. This happened in, in Bradford, in Bristol, in Wolverhampton, in Leicester, uh, and also in, in Southall and West London. I focus a lot on Southall, uh, being of personal interest as, as having spent a, a large part of my childhood there. And in Southall alone, by the mid-70s, over 3,000 children were being bussed out to different areas. And this was then soon taken up by um, an organization in the area called the Indian Workers Association, um, which is the, the first chapter of my book. And they actually used a, a legal means to combat busing. They appealed to the Race Relations Act um, and said that it was discriminatory that only black and brown children were being were being bussed out. And they won that case on that on that basis. But 
Busing was still in place for over 20 years in Southall um, and in other places in the UK. And then with the educationally subnormal policy, uh, this was a term that came in in 1945 uh, and replaced, replaced the term of being mentally deficient. And it was essentially this, this catch-all term that encompassed anyone who was deemed to have special education needs. Uh, and in fact, that's the, the term that later came in to replace uh, the ESN term. And this mostly affected black children. And this meant that they would be sent to a special school. Um, and in these special schools, essentially, there was nothing expected of, of children in these schools. They were expected to function as members of society, but there was they, they wouldn't do, go through the regular curriculum. And this was, again, fought by many, many black parents. Uh, this was fought locally on many levels, and then it ended up being fought nationally. Um, after the publication of a book called How the West Indian Child is Made Educationally Subnormal in the British School System. And this book was based on an internal report which had been leaked, which showed that, for example, in one area, immigrant children made up only about 17% of the regular student body, but in the special educationally subnormal schools, they were 34% um, of the student body. And so suddenly all these figures came out to support the fact that black children in particular were being discriminated against and being called educationally subnormal. And they were also funneled into these schools based on very dubious methods. So a lot of IQ tests that were used or just simple teacher identification um, or head teacher identification that a child would have special needs. And therefore, it was just a way of essentially funneling uh, these black students out. Of, uh, out of mainstream schools. And what kind of an impact did that classification have on these children? It had a huge impact, a huge, huge impact. Their self-belief was absolutely zero. I mean, not that black children who stayed in mainstream schools necessarily fared much better, but there was a real shame associated with being educationally subnormal. A few years ago, uh, the BBC did a fantastic uh, documentary called, called Subnormal. And... One thing that really struck me from that was the presenter said it was actually quite difficult to find people who were willing to talk about the experience. And that's, that's some odd, what, 50 years on. Um, people don't want to address that because of, of the shame and the embarrassment that comes um, from having been labelled uh, educationally subnormal. How did white parents react? So there were always two sides of reaction to every issue that came up. And there's the same with busing as well. Some parents were obviously very happy that people, that their children would not be uh, mixing with that many um, black and brown children. For some parents, 30% um, of the student body was still too high a figure. They would prefer completely segregated schools. And for others, they didn't really think about it because, yeah, it didn't necessarily affect them. A lot of parents supported these kinds of policies, but obviously... Not all white parents were, were for this. There were some people who thought the discussion was misguided in terms of that the focus shouldn't be on, on black children because the, the ESN, what happened next is um, after this book was published, it was highlighted that black children were discriminated against. And this led into inquiries into um, the education of West Indian children 
And some white parents thought this was misguided and said, well, it's not, let's not talk about racism. Actually, what we should talk about is school funding um, and resourcing. And that's an issue that affects all students. And why are black children being singled out and being discussed? Uh, and why do they uh, have the special attention that, um, that our students don't get? And uh, on the other side, you also had teachers and head teachers who were against the ESM policy. In the same leaked document, which provided all the statistics for Coward's book, there are many head teachers in there who thought that students were wrongly placed in those schools. And I want to pick up on something that you said there, the idea that some white parents felt that the focus was on the wrong areas. It should be looking at school funding, having this idea of a separate agenda and to use that to discuss the women's movement. Because something I found so striking was how the white women's movement was so different in its aims to those of black and Asian female activists. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, I was also really, really struck by what I researched about the women's, the different women's movements. I think what perhaps highlights it most starkly is that as the women's liberation movement was coming up in the 70s and they held their first um, conference, there were 600 attendees and only two were black. And so the women's liberation movement were fighting for equal pay, they were fighting for childcare, they were fighting for access to um, abortions and better family planning. And this did not always actually resonate with, for example, with black women. So whilst the women's liberation movement wanted 24-hour nurseries and things like that, black women also wanted to actually work less. They didn't necessarily want all that time for childcare. What they needed is some time to actually spend with their family rather than access to the labor market, which they had quite readily by that point. And they didn't necessarily want free access to abortions. What they wanted was the right to have children because they had no issues in finding access to contraception and things like abortions. Then I focus in the book on the fight of black women and brown women against a particular contraception, which is an injectable contraception known as uh, Depo-Provera. In the 1970s, when this was first introduced to the UK, it was introduced on a restricted basis. So it could only be used in yet very exceptional circumstances because there were concerns about the side effects, which at its most extreme included sterility, included long periods of not uh, having periods, and there was also some cancer risks that were identified at the time. But this was, even though it was only approved for restricted use, it was soon found out that it was used very, very, very widely on black and brown women in the UK, often without their informed consent. So one study showed that as few as 25% of women who were administered Depo-Provera um, were actually told about any of the side effects. Um, and by 1977, over 30,000 women were estimated to have taken Depo-Provera. And so black women were fighting against contraception like this that was being used as a way of population control um, against black women. So you have, uh, for example, the Organization of Women of Asian and African Descent, who were an umbrella organization. They included information about it in their newsletter. They discussed it at their conferences because after the uh, they realized there wasn't a space for them in the mainly white um, women's liberation movement, they created their own conferences. And they discussed the issue there. They um, also worked with white women, though, in that, at that time as well on the Ban the Jab campaign. 
And black women used their position as um, NHS workers to also raise awareness about um, about the jab. And you discussed the Ban the Jab campaign there. Can you tell us about that in a bit more detail? Yeah, so the Ban the Jab campaign is kind of as it, uh, as it sounds. They wanted Deepak Rivera to be categorically banned. And this was an, uh, an organisation and a rare example, actually, of black and brown people working quite closely with white campaigning groups. Um, so their focus was uh, mostly, though, UK-based, where it's been used against black and brown women. The Black groups were also campaigning um, for it to stop being used abroad because it was also used in the global south a lot as well in Zimbabwe, in India, in Thailand, in South Africa it was being used as well. So they were also their campaigning focus was international, whereas Ban the Jab was a was a national campaign. And before we move on from this subject, I want to go back to something that you said, which was that women had to create a space for themselves. Was there not a space for them in existing Black and Asian movements? Yeah. So women were involved in all of these movements from from the very beginning. They were involved very visibly. Althea Jones-Lacroix was the leader of the Black Panthers. The other Black power group I mentioned, the Fasimbas, women made up more than half of their membership. Women were at protests, they were at marches, they were always involved. And also, crucially, they were also involved in a lot of the less glamorous and the hidden areas of this work. They would do the childcare, they even cooking. So when people were having meetings at their house, this is all part of that labor um, involved in these movements. But they found that their concerns as women were not necessarily taken very seriously um, in mixed sex groups. The idea was them then talking about issues that affected them as women was detracting from the kind of overall arching aims. So they started to either form their own chapters and sections within these groups, and then they realised actually that's still not giving them autonomy. Um, So lots of um, local groups were formed. So I also discussed the Brixton Black Women's Group, which was formed uh, quite quickly out of members, for example, who'd been part of um, the Black Panthers. And as we've seen as well, there wasn't a space for them within the the mainly white uh, women's liberation movement. And it was the same for brown women as well. There were Asian youth movements um, that came up in the late 70s, but those were mostly quite male dominated and there wasn't a space for them there. So they created their own groups like OAS. And changing focus now, there is one episode in the book that I really wanted to ask you about, which is one that I'd never heard of before, which was the Grunwick dispute. Can you tell us about this? The Grunwick dispute was striking for two reasons. So this was a strike led by mostly brown women in this sleepy little neighbourhood of um, northwest London. And the second reason it was quite striking was because of what they managed to do in terms of uh, trade union support, which had not happened before. So they were striking for better working conditions and for union recognition within this factory. It was a a photo processing factory in northwest London. And they were only 137 strikers. It was about 20% of the workforce, uh, which wasn't necessarily enough to to convince management to to change their mind. And the strikers were led by a woman called Jaya Bendesai. And she and the other strikers ended up doing a tour of the country. They went and met the nation's working class. They met, went to foundries and mills and docks and factories. Um, I think they had about something like 2,000 speaking engagements, um, as well as being on the picket line and organising the strike. 
Um, they went and rallied the nation's working class to their cause. People came from all over the country to support them on the picket line. At its height, they had 20,000 people show up from across the country, um, including Arthur Scargill and the miners. They had labor MPs and minor celebrities um, coming to support their cause. They even had the dock workers from East London, who just a few years prior had been out in support of Enoch Powell after his um, racist tirade, known as the, the Rivers of Blood speech. So it was a real seminal moment of trade union support for mostly brown female workers, which was which was quite unprecedented. And it was also a rare example of trade unions actually supporting brown women for once because there had been other cases such as imperial typewriters, Manfield's hosiery, where they had not supported brown, brown workers. And considering how much support this protest got, you might expect it to be heavily covered in the press. Was that the case? <laughs> so it was. It was actually very heavily um, covered. I feel like Brunswick is one of the, the country's kind of worst kept secrets. It's Everyone seems to know about it from the particular era, especially if you were a kind of part of the, the union movement. But uh, I think, yeah, none of, none of my generation seem to have heard of it. It was covered, but like a lot of the media coverage at the time, the focus would often be on these days like this massive day of action where 20,000 people came down. The coverage of that wouldn't be what the strikers are are fighting for. The focus would be on how many police officers were injured, the monetary damages that were done. And we see this kind of time and time and time again throughout that period. So yes, it was definitely covered, but the focus would often be on the side of the state, uh, you may say. So police harassment is a recurring theme in your book. Can you tell us about this? Yeah, so police, as you say, was the harassment was a very, very um, common feature at, at this time. The police tactics were very, very heavy handed. So with the Mangrove uh, Nine, so there was a restaurant called the Mangrove in Notting Hill. And this was run by a West Indian man called Frank Richlow. And this was a, a community space as well as a restaurant. One police officer in the area, PC Pulley, he took a particular um, interest in the Mangrove restaurant. And this restaurant got raided upwards of 10 times within the space of a, a few months. And this obviously was really, really bad for, for business. And so the Black Panthers and other Black activists decided to stage a protest to say, hands off the Mangrove restaurant. So they gathered in, in August in 1970, only 150 people, a very small protest um, when we're talking about other protests, which would bring out tens of thousands of people. But there were more than 200 police officers there. The protesters were very, very heavily outnumbered. And the protest ended in clashes between the police and the protesters. And it ended up with nine of them being charged and they became known as the Mangrove Nine. And this trial became seminal. This trial took place the, the following year and became a seminal case because it was a real test of whether the jury would believe that the police were indeed discriminating against black people, discriminating against the restaurant for being black owned and being a black space for, for the community um, and discriminating against these nine in particular. And that was, they, they actually won that case only a few of the charges, the minor charges, stood at the end. And it was the first time a judge had actually admitted that there was indeed evidence of racism. 
didn't go so far as to say that the police had indeed discriminated, but said that there was evidence of, of racism. Um, and this, even that minor comment was actually, it actually incensed the police so much that they tried to get it withdrawn, um, but which it wasn't. So this was a common feature throughout the period. And it wasn't just the kind of regular police force, but you also had the use of the special patrol group at the time. And they were a paramilitary branch um, of the police who were deployed in times of public disorder. So they were actually deployed at the Grunwick strike on that day when 20,000 people gathered. And that was the first time they'd ever been used in an industrial dispute. And they most uh, notoriously were also deployed in 1979 when there was a protest in Southall against uh, a National Front election meeting that was being being held in the area. The Special Patrol Group were deployed along with the police and at least one person ended up in a coma and one of the protesters, Blair Peach, was, was killed by a member of the Special Patrol Group, but that person was, was never charged. And so this is a... Unfortunately, a commonly recurring um, theme that we see throughout throughout this period. And then that culminates in 1981, in the uprisings. And we'll come on to 1981 in just a moment. But before we get there, we've heard about the police, we've heard about the press. But in general, how did the state respond to protests in this period? Yeah, I think to some extent you cannot, well, you cannot separate the response of the police from the response of the state. But the response of the state was also quite heavy-handed. There was always trying to figure out how can we dampen this fever. So we see throughout the period that there's increasing immigration control. And that actually prompted a lot of the protests as well. But we see there's these increasing um, immigration control. But at the same time, there are multiple race relations acts. And so they would often try and appease a lot of um, the black and brown communities by saying, okay, but look, we're introducing more legislation and therefore, you know, everything's okay because we have now legislation that says, oh, yes, you can't be discriminated against in in these areas of life. So that's how they reacted mostly to, to these kinds of groups. And they also did a lot of denial when there was a story that broke about um, virginity testing that was taking place on um, brown women who were coming into the country. And they first denied that there was any sort of uh, invasive vaginal testing. Then they said, oh, no, it happened in three cases maximum. And then they denied any sort of calls for any more numbers. But we now know from papers that have um, opened up under the the statutory limits have been lifted and those papers are in the National Archives and we know that there were over 70 women that this happened to. So that was often the state response was to, to deny, to try and figure out how to uh, quash and dull the elements and take the kind of radical sting out of, um, out of these groups by, by appeasing them with law. And as our conversation draws close to the end then, you mentioned 1981 and the uprisings that happened here. Can you tell us about these in more detail? So the 1981 uprisings took place in 29 towns and cities across the country. And they were a massive release and a massive uh, cry of help against uh, inequalities and discrimination that black and brown communities faced. It was mostly led by young people. And because in 1981, there was huge unemployment. 
um, in some areas, 40% or higher or, um, for, for black people. And there were very few opportunities. And after these decades of having police harassment, you had the uh, very well-known SUS laws where police could stop and search people seemingly at random. They were being heavily used. You had the constant police harassment. You had uh, police that wouldn't defend people against threats like the National Front. And lots of people just fed up. And so you had these massive uprisings all in that summer. And that also led to another seminal trial, which was the trial of the Bradford 12. And this trial was organized. They were arrested because uh, they had made petrol bombs to defend themselves against the National Front March, which ended up actually never taking place. And their slogan was, self-defense is no offense. And by this, they meant that, well, the police aren't going to defend us. So we made the petrol bombs in order to defend ourselves and our communities, because what else are we supposed to do? And they went to trial with that. They said, yes, we made the petrol bombs. They didn't deny that. They said, and we would do it again, because what else are we supposed to do? And they actually won that trial on on their defense of of self-defense is no offense. And you say in your book that 1981 was a turning point in UK race relations. Why is this? Yes, in 1981, from then onwards, uh, and I end the book in 1981 specifically for that reason, because it's the start of what we now see um, in the UK in terms of anti-racist actions. So from 1981 onwards, what we see uh, is the start of what's been called as anti-racism from above. So as I mentioned that the state wanted to kind of take this uh, sting out of the radical action And they did this by starting to absorb people and communities into state structures. So before where previously uh, black and brown people had largely been shunned from all the parties, they were now being accepted as members. So by the early 80s, you start actually having the first um, Bengali councillors in East London, for example, where you have the black sections created in the Labour Party. And then by 1987, you have the election of the first four black and brown MPs in modern times. Because before that, there had been no black and brown MPs. By 1981, there were actually fewer than 5% of the um, House of Parliament were women. Um, So you see them now being welcomed, not necessarily with open arms, but certainly with uh, more open arms than they had been before. And you also had more access to state funding. There had been state funding before, and this was always a point of contention within the movements in terms of whether to accept state funding and what that meant in terms of what they could and could not do. And But from 1981 onwards, uh, the state funding was plentiful and a lot of organizations took this up. But this often came then with restrictions or with a need to suddenly distinguish yourself from, from one another. So before where there had been a lot of solidarity with movements, there weren't um, groups just for just for Indians or necessarily or just for Pakistanis or just for Hindus or Muslims. But suddenly, after 1981, you had to start distinguishing yourself like that. You had to show that you had a distinct culture and a distinct cultural need. Whereas before the Black Panthers, two members of the executive committee were brown. There wasn't this kind of, okay, I'm brown, I have my issues, I'm over here, and you're black, you've got issues, you stay over there. This solidarity, though, went after the 19, uh, after 1981 in the 1980s. And for my final question, why do you think so many of the episodes that you include in your book have been forgotten today? 
I asked myself this question constantly <laughs> throughout writing this book. And I think it has, and there's lots of different um, suggestions as to why. I, I think the main reason is that if you talk about anti-racism and uh, activism, we have to have very uncomfortable conversations about why they existed, which leads us to talk about racism and about uh, everything we've discussed here today, the, the quality of life for black and brown people in the UK, a lot of that state-sanctioned or state-facilitated. And that's not necessarily a conversation that I think we're willing to necessarily have yet in the UK. I think it's the same reason that discussions around the empire get very fraught and we don't necessarily talk about that. And I think that we, yeah, we'd rather focus on recent episodes that invoke more more civic pride. And we discuss activism in relation to elsewhere rather than on the British mainland. We're happy talking about the US civil rights movement. We're happy even talking about, about Gandhi. But anything that took place yeah, on British soil, I think it makes people still a bit, a bit uncomfortable. That was Preeti Dillon speaking to me, Rhiannon Davis. The Shoulders We Stand On, How Black and Brown People Fought for Change in the United Kingdom, is published by Dialogue Books and on sale now. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Sam Leal Green. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.